Well, good morning again. We are excited to launch into our series from the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a book that you find in the Old Testament. And this is a time when the people of Israel are in a lot of distress, a lot of despair, and there's a lot at stake. And in the midst of this season, God raises up some very significant leaders. And we're going to be spending six weeks studying the life of Nehemiah, but really learning some things about biblical leadership. What does the Bible have to say about leadership? And one of the things that I'm entirely convinced is that leadership matters. And my wife gets sick of me. Whenever we go to restaurants and have a bad experience or have bad customer service somewhere, my wife knows that at some point I'm going to turn to her and say, this is a leadership issue. <laughs> I, she's like, she predicts the moment that I'm going to say it because I never usually blame the people I'm interacting with. I always think someone didn't get trained. Someone isn't being held accountable. Somebody failed as a leader. And I've given my life to leadership both in what I do and in my education. And, and one of the simplest definitions of leadership is that leadership Leadership is influence. I love that because it's easy to remember. Leadership is influence. So if you're sitting here this morning or listening in and thinking, well, is this serious for me because I don't have a job where I'm technically a leader? Uh, I don't have the title of a leader. Listen, leadership's not about your title. There's a lot of people who have titles that are not leaders. Leadership is not about your position. Leadership is not about your education. And I believe in all of those things. Leadership is about who you are. And we're going to see this morning that leaders have more than titles, positions, and education. Leaders have a burden. And Nehemiah had a burden that he had to do something about, and that's what made him a leader. So if you're thinking, I don't know if I'm a leader, if you have influence on anyone in your life, whether it's your, your coworkers, your family, your, your friends, you're a leader. And if you say none of those, then you're at least leading yourself. <laughs> and self-leadership is often the hardest type of leadership. And so as we look at Nehemiah, I want to just because we're starting this series, I want to give us some historical context to where we are in history when we get to Nehemiah. In Genesis chapter 12, God sovereignly chooses a man named Abraham, who eventually we come to know as Abraham, and says to him, leave everything you know and go to a place that I'll show you when you get there. And I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants. And through you and your family, I'm going to bless the entire world. And so Abraham, one of the patriarchs of the faith, has a son named Isaac, uh, the son of promise. Abraham's 100 years old. He has Isaac. Isaac has twins, Esau and Jacob, but the younger one, Jacob, becomes the son of promise. Jacob has 12 sons, and his 11th son is named Joseph. And Joseph is so favored by Jacob that his other brothers hate him, and they decide to sell him into slavery. Pretty, pretty rough. And uh, Joseph ends up the second in command in Egypt, serving next to Pharaoh, where he uses his newfound power to rescue his brothers instead of punishing them. And he brings his whole family into Egypt. And it's in Egypt where the, really this family begins to grow, and the next Pharaoh is threatened by them, and he begins to enslave them. That's when we get the story of Moses. God raises up a deliverer named Moses who comes and through the 10 plagues. And as a church, we've been reading through Exodus this month, and so you've been reading this with me. Um, he raises up Moses, 10 plagues, leads them out of Egypt, leads them through the Red Sea, leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law so that they can become a people. And in the wilderness of all places, this family becomes a people who become a nation. And initially, they're basically a confederation of 12 tribes representing the 12 sons of Jacob. And they're ruled by judges and, and priests and prophets. But eventually they say, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And God relents and they have a king. And the first three kings are Saul, David, and Solomon. 
And after Solomon, there's a civil war, and the nation breaks, and you have the ten northern tribes called Israel, and you have the two southern tribes called Judah. And in the 8th century, the ten northern tribes, which never have a godly king in their history, are dragged off into exile by Assyria, who are one of the world powers of that day. And about 150 years later, Judah, the two southern tribes, they also get dragged into exile by a different nation called Babylon. And they go into exile, and Babylon soon after is actually defeated by a, a, a nation called Persia. And so they're in exile for about 150 years, and then we get to Nehemiah. Now, when we get to Nehemiah, some of the Jewish people actually are already back because there was a king named Cyrus who said about, I think it was about a, maybe 100 and, uh, about 80 years before Nehemiah, he said, you can go back. Some of you can go back and you can rebuild. That was sort of Persia's uh, philosophy when they captured people. Instead of eliminating them, they wanted to assimilate them and actually empower them because they wanted alignments because they were fighting lots of different battles. And so a lot of the Jewish people had already gone back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, and they had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And then there was a man named Ezra, which is the book of the Bible before Nehemiah. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They eventually were split. And Ezra restores the heart of worship to the, to the people in Jerusalem. However, we're going to say that there's still an issue. And this is where Nehemiah comes into the story. And this is where we pick up the story. This is about 13 years after Ezra has gone back to Jerusalem to restore worship. Let's start right in chapter 1. And we're going to read all of chapter 1 together this morning. It's a little more portion of scripture than I would normally read. But I think it's important that we understand this. Verse 1 says, These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, so there's a new Persian king now, King Artaxerxes, who was the son of Xerxes, I was at the fortress of Susa. Susa was the winter capital uh, for the Persian kings. Hanani, one of my brothers, this may have been an actual brother, it may have just been another Jewish individual, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah, so they'd come back. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah wants an update. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, look at his response. I sat down and wept. In fact, for days, and, and we don't know how long, it could have been months, I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heavens. And then I said, I love Nehemiah's prayer, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his command, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people. He's kind of reminding God, don't forget, these are your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I, have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. But please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. And this is what happened, the exile. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if, even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen uh, for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer and listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. There was always a remnant of faithful Israelites. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart 
speaking of King Artaxerxes, to be kind to me. And then just finishes with this little statement. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So what we learn in chapter one is three things about leadership, or three things about leaders. And the big idea, remember, is that leaders have a burden. Leaders have a burden. And we're going to learn three things about a burden. And the first thing is this, is that a burden means pain. We don't love pain. We don't run towards pain. We're a society that uh, protects ourselves from pain, takes things to keep ourselves from experiencing pain, numbs ourselves to pain, physical pain, mental pain, social pain, emotional pain. We got all sorts of tools to get away from pain. But burden, or leaders do not numb themselves to pain. Leaders do not turn their heads away from pain. Leaders know that if they're going to have a burden, a burden means pain. And it's said in the description of the Israelites that they were in great trouble and disgrace. And those two Hebrew words, great trouble, is the, it is the strongest possible word in the Hebrew language to describe danger, disaster, and misery. They're not pulling any punches, these friends of Nehemiah. They're letting them know it is bad. It's really bad. They chose the strongest word they had to communicate how bad it was. And then the word disgrace means shame and scorn. And the reason why is because these walls have been destroyed. The gates are on fire. And the walls of a city meant so much back then to a people. The walls of the city was, of course, it was protection. But also, actually, the walls of the city was a source of identity. That's how you knew it was a city. That's how you knew where the city started. And the city. So they had, this, they had this temple and they had these residential areas, but they had no identity. They had no restoration of the walls. They had no protection from enemies. They had no strength. Now, the walls were originally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when they were first taken to exile about 140 years ago. But that's not actually probably what's being referenced here because we read in Ezra that they tried to start rebuilding the walls and they had to stop. Because the king, this same king, King Artaxerxes, said stop building the walls. And the reason why he told them to stop building the walls is because some of the enemies of the Jewish people were lying about them. And saying, look what they're doing. They're building walls, and the reason they're building walls is because they're going to fight against you. And they're going to revolt against you. And the one thing Persia would not stand for would be a captured people fighting against them. Now, Nehemiah gets this news, and there's a lot of things he could have said. He could have said, this is not my problem. This sounds like your, this sounds, you ever say this? That sounds like a you problem. <laughs> that is not a me problem. That's a you problem. You guys are there. You saw it. What are you telling me about it? Go do something about it, right? He could have said that. We say that. He could have said, this has not been fixed in 150 years. How am I going to fix it? Like, obviously, we're just going to have to live with this. He could have said, other great leaders have tried to deal with this, like Ezra, and it hasn't worked out. So who am I to try and step in? He could have pointed out that this king, by the way, this same king was the one who just said a few years ago that we can't rebuild the walls. So what do you think we can do about it? He could have said, my life's pretty comfortable. We're going to learn a little bit more about Nehemiah's life and what it meant to be a cupbearer. But Nehemiah actually had it pretty good. He had a pretty good life, and he could have said, why would I kind of mess up the life I have to deal with the mess in Jerusalem? But he didn't say any of that. Why? Because he's a leader. And leaders have a burden, and a burden means, he chose, and here, this is what leaders do, he chose to make someone else's burden his burden, and leaders will do that. They will enter into other people's pain, and they'll feel the pain, and they'll do something about it. Leadership is never about me. Leadership is never about what I can get out of it. Leadership is always, how do I serve others? 
You know, there's different types of leadership. My education, my graduate degree is, is in transformational leadership. I don't know what it means. It sounds fancy. I, I just, it's pretty much just run-of-the-mill leadership. But there's transformational leadership. There's organizational leadership. You'll hear about transactional leadership, positional leadership. And then sometimes people talk about servant leadership. And listen, for a Christian, there's no other type of leadership. Servant leadership is redundant for the Christian. There's no other kind. Leadership is not about propping myself up so that I can succeed. Leadership is about laying myself down so that other people can succeed. And Nehemiah here feels the burden and he enters into the pain. The question before us this morning is, do we have a burden? Do we see the pain? Do we feel the pain? There's so many ways that I mentioned that we numb ourselves, we, we look away. We distract ourselves with the busyness of our lives. We distract ourselves with food and drink and pleasure and vacations, all good things, but are they just distractions so we don't have to feel the burden that God wants us to feel? We convince ourselves that it's somebody else's problem, that it's not our problem, that somebody else would be, we, 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 we cloak ourselves in false humility. Oh, I couldn't do it. I'm not good enough. Somebody else should do it. We create false narratives to justify our lack of concern. Well, they made that situation and they made the bed and so they should lie in it. But leaders feel burdens and feel pain. And when you look out at the world, just, just reflect on this question this morning before we get to our next point. When you look out at the world, what do you see that you say, that needs God's kingdom to show up? It needs his touch. Where do you long to see things made right and new? What is your burden? God, break our hearts for the things that break yours. The second thing that we learn here is not just that a burden means pain, but that a burden leads to prayer. We're going to learn that Nehemiah is a practical man. If you're practical, you're going to like Nehemiah. He's a man of action, but he first prays. Sometimes we say things like this, and I know I've said it myself, so I'm not, I'm not busting on you. But sometimes when things get really bad, we say things like this. I guess all we can do now is pray. As if prayer is a last resort and not a first response. What I love about Nehemiah's leadership, before he makes a plan, which he will, and he does, he starts to pray. And there's some things we see in his prayer. It's a repenting prayer. It's emotional. It's costly. He's fasting. He gives up food. It's a remembering prayer. Did you, did you hear how many times he remembered who God was and what God said and what God did? When we pray to God, we should remember his word. We should, we should actually pray God's word right back to him. God, you said this, and this is what your word reveals about you. And I'm just reminding you, not because you forgot, but because I forget. It's a reminding prayer. It's a reoccurring prayer. It's a persistent prayer. In fact, when it says that he mourned, fasted, and prayed, we don't know if it was for days or for months, but we do know it was not a one-time thing, that it was a persistent, continual prayer. And why should we pray? See, some of us give up on things. We pray for something once, and we think, well, God, we kind of lobbed the ball into your court, and now we'll sit back and just see what you're going to do with it. And God wants us, he teaches it here, and Jesus teaches it very clear in one of his parables. God wants us to persistently pray, to endure in prayer, to regularly pray. There's people in your life that you've been praying for for years. Do not stop praying for them. Continue to pray in them. And persistent prayer is not because God needs reminders. Pers persistent prayer is, see, God already knows. Persistent prayer is because we need the reminder that God, you're our only hope, and I need you. Christians always pray two types of prayer at the exact same time, and Nehemiah does it here. Prayers of humility and prayers of hope. We pray prayers of humility because we know who we are. And we pray prayers of hope because we know who he is. Prayers of humility and prayers of hope. What do your burdens lead you to do? I mean, listen, everyone in the world has some sort of burden, something that pushes them to live the way they live. But a lot of people's burdens cause them just to get angry. 
Um, a lot of people's burdens lead them to judge others. A lot of people's burdens lead them to vengeance or to give up hope. But for Christian leaders, our burdens should always first lead us to pray. Does God put a burden on your heart? Pray. Persist and pray and ask God to move in and step in. And the last thing that we see this morning is this, is that a burden needs a plan. So Nehemiah was a cupbearer. And the cupbearer was, was one of the highest ranking court officials. This is amazing. A Jewish man is arguably second in command in Persia. That's how much, that's how high a cupbearer ranked in certain societies. It kind of reminds us of Joseph and, and Daniel and what God did to elevate his people. But, but as a cupbearer, one of the things that, that Nehemiah would do is he would prepare the table with the wine. And part of his job was to taste the wine of the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Not exactly the greatest job in the world, I guess. You know, a few nervous minutes every day. Um, but, you know, he would taste the wine, make sure he was going to live. And if he lived, then the king would drink the same wine. He would also bear the signet ring of the king. He might have been considered like a CFO in Persia. He had access and he had influence. And Nehemiah sees that not as a coincidence, but as an answer to prayer, as the providence of God. And so when Nehemiah chapter 1 ends, Nehemiah goes, Give me favor, because I'm going to go to the same king who said to stop building the wall. I'm going to ask him to do something about it. And we learned something really important here. Listen, friends, prayer does not lead to passivity. Christian prayer is not fatalistic. We don't pray and then sit back and cross our spiritual fingers and hope for the best. Prayer compels us to move. Prayer pushes us out into co-partnership with what God is already doing to establish his kingdom. It's prayer plus a plan. We see this in Acts 27 where Paul gets a revelation in a vision that the shipwreck is going to happen and no one is going to die. But then Paul leads the efforts to get them safely to shore. Do you see those two together? Revelation and prayer, but also the perspiration of a plan and the effort. A burden needs a plan. And we're going to see much more next week as we get to this next part, how Nehemiah begins to act out his plan. But as we close, let me ask you this. What are the opportunities that God has given you that he has placed before you? Uh, there is purpose beyond what you can see. Where God has put you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, your relationships, the places that you shop, those are not coincidences. There is the providence of God. And if we will see those opportunities and we will put a plan in place, God will use us. What is our plan? I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to come up. As we close, a burden means pain, a burden leads to prayer, and a burden needs a plan. I want to just very quickly mention three snapshots of what this looks like to make this as practical as I can. One of my, one of my good friends started a company, and the way that the company started was on December 14th, 2012, he got a phone call. That was the day of the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. He told me this story recently. I'd never heard him tell this story. He got a phone call from his friend who was an officer in that community and was the second person on site at that school. And this person called him broken. You know, you can imagine the emotions of what he had seen and what he had endured. And my friend got off the phone and said, I got to do something about this. He chose to enter into that pain. And to make a long story short, he started a business right here in Syracuse that is now providing protective glass for schools all over our country. The best they're the best at what they do, and they're doing it all over the country. Why? Because the burden, the pain, the prayer, and the plan. We have a woman in our own church, Jessica Willis. Jessica has a wonderful job. She works in a wonderful office right here in Syracuse, but God's put a different burden on her heart in this season of her life. She wants to see children find and follow Jesus for the rest of her life, their lives. 
And so you know what she's doing? She's going back to school to going back to school to be prepared for ministry. And actually, right now, she's an intern here at the church. She's interning with us for about six to nine months so that she can learn what it looks like to, to, to serve in a local church. Because she had a burden. She felt the pain as a mom with young girls and thought, I need to see more of my children's friends know Jesus and follow Jesus. And I'm not just going to sit back and say, Pastor Vicky will do it. It's my burden. I feel the pain. She prayed, and now she has a plan. And then in closing, final, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus have a burden? He looked at a world that was headed to hell, that was broken beyond repair, that had no interest in his father. And he saw the brokenness of his father's heart, and he said, that pain is my pain. And he entered in, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' burden, he felt the pain. He was a man of prayer, and he had a plan, and his plan took him all the way to the cross. And our plans may take us to crosses sometimes, but we endure and we lead because Jesus did. Let's pray together. God, I believe that your Holy Spirit in this moment is putting dreams in people's hearts and plans and motivation and inspiration. We don't want our lives just to pass us by. We want to live lives that matter for your glory and for your kingdom. So we give you thanks. Just take a moment this morning and just pray this simple prayer. Holy Spirit, speak to me. What is the burden? What is the burden? It's not always going to be a spiritual burden. It's not that everybody's supposed to be a pastor or an evangelist. Some of you have a burden to see children be educated. Some of you have a burden to see underprivileged people resourced. Some of you have a burden to see organizational health in companies. Some of you see a burden just for neighbors to be known and loved. It's it can be so many things, but don't live your life avoiding the burden that God wants to give you for people and for his purpose.